Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gehanna, Ohio, and we exist to help people find and follow God. To find out more about our church, to join a group, or to give online, visit threecreekschurch.com. In this series, we're diving into the story of Esther. Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God isn't written. But the power of God, the presence of God, and the providence of God are clearly on display. Thanks for tuning in to Providence, the story of Esther. Good morning, Three Creeks. My name is Joel, and we are not the warmest church in town. It is freezing in this room. I hope your toes can make it. After the coat drive for the kids, we'll be doing a a glove drive for us to stay warm through the winter. Uh, No, somebody who is in our church went to this school as a kid and said that it was this cold 30 years ago. So we are going to be the ones that figure it out. We're going to get the heat turned up here at some point. Bear with us as we try to warm up the room. Uh, We're in week two of our four-week series on the person of Esther. It's called Providence. I'm a little nervous this morning because today's message is for a very, it's a very very, uh, exclusive select group of people. Might not be for everybody. Uh, So I hope maybe that this will land, but this message is only for people who are not in full-time ministry. Non-pastors, non-missionaries. So Nate Harrison, sorry, man, you're just going to have to pray back there with me that this lands for everybody else. This is exclusively for people who are not in vocational ministry. It's also exclusively for people who have made mistakes before. So I think that limits, you know, not everybody. Now, some of you are mistake-free. And, uh, and, so, but, and, and it's also exclusively for people who are interested in at some point in their life being used by God to promote justice, to promote the healing that Jesus brought to the earth. If you're interested in that, and yet not in full-time ministry, this message is for you. Because this is, this is who Esther was. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go right now to Esther chapter 4. Before we get all the way to chapter 4, I'll take a few minutes and set the stage for you on what happens in chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Esther altogether, then go and watch it or listen to last week's message. I, I flew through the whole story at a high, uh, at a 10,000-foot view, and today we're going to dive into a specific story in Esther chapter 4 when she goes to meet King Xerxes. King Xerxes, I, I cannot publicly recommend the movie 300. But perhaps if you have seen it, the one where all the guys did P90X and the girls don't wear enough clothes, that movie has King Xerxes in it. He's the one that comes. He's like taller than everybody. He's covered in golden rings and chains. And in fact, this is a, go to that next picture. This is King Xerxes. This is the image of him, at least the one that Hollywood displays. We're going to talk about what happens when Esther goes in to meet with King Xerxes. And and one more note before I get into reading the first couple verses is that in in preparing for this message, uh, I I got very excited for one reason specifically, because last week we talked about how in the whole story of Esther, there are these little details that work out. And at the time people thought, oh man, what a coincidence. But in hindsight, now that we know the whole story, we go, that wasn't a coincidence at all. That was providence. That was God in the details. That was God orchestrating it behind the scenes. God was doing more than people thought at the time. I am so excited about this message specifically because I I believe with all of my heart that there's some folks in here 
that need Esther chapter 4 and this message and this story maybe more than they ever have in their life. Like today or this week or last week, this is not going to be a coincidence. Wow, can you believe that the message is about that and I'm going through this? You might go, that's crazy. No, it's not crazy. It's God. Like it's the providence of God. The protective care and guidance of God is that you are here and we're talking about Esther chapter 4. I'm excited to hear maybe even this week stories about how that, how that comes to be true. Let me set the stage for you. Esther, one of the heroes of the Bible, did not start out as a hero of the Bible. In fact, probably very unlikely that she would become a hero of the Bible. She was an orphan. Her parents died. She was raised by her cousin named Mordecai. Esther just so you know what's going on in, in history, this is in 486 BC. And if you know the history of the Old Testament, that is after the Babylonian exile where all the Jews are in Babylon. This is after Ezra leads them back to Jerusalem, but it's before Nehemiah goes back and, and builds the wall. So the, the Jewish people, there's about 15 million of them at this time. They're essentially scattered all over the known world. The God-fearing Jews, the ones who really loved and followed God, they went back to Jerusalem. That's home base. That's where you go if you love God. But Esther's in Susa. That's in modern-day Iran. That's not close to Jerusalem. And so all signs would point to Esther's not really living a life in full pursuit and devotion to God. She just is a Jewish person living in another city. Think about this. Mordecai the person that raised her, he's a guard at the pagan king's gate. That is a no-no to work for the pagan king if you are a God-fearing Jew. And so not a whole lot of signs point to Esther becoming this hero of the Bible, but she does. And we're going to find out in Esther chapter 4 how that happens. Let me read you just the first two verses of Esther chapter 1. I'll tell you a little bit more about King Xerxes, this king that she's going to go see. So Esther 1 Verse 1 and 2 says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, the king Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Okay, Xerxes is the king of Persia. His dad was Darius. He became the king in 486 BC. Like I said, he was 35 years old at the time. He ruled, when it says stretching from India to Kush, 300 million square miles. It's about the size of the United States, and at that point was essentially the entire world. At this time, he's preparing to launch an attack on the Greeks. He's the richest man in the world by far. He's the most powerful man in the world by far. And the worst things that you can imagine that a man would do to people, to women, in culture, it's worse. Xerxes is an evil, evil person. You you see glimpses of it here, but if you read historically, it's just, you don't even want to read it. It's terrible. It's disgusting. Historians record, I mean, Xerxes, his only goal is power and riches and fame. Anyone that opposes him, he just crushes them. Historians record that a bridge broke because of a storm near the palace of Xerxes. And Xerxes had all of the builders of the storm, excuse me, the builders of the bridge executed. 
And then he ordered that his servants go and whip the waves and chain, whip chains against the water to quote-unquote punish the sea. He's an evil, evil, power-hungry man. He throws parties for months at a time just to show off of his wealth. He has two palaces, one in Persepolis and one in Susa, one for the winter, one for the summer. This place, those, this palace that we're talking about here has actually been discovered by archaeologists. This is not folklore. This is history. And in Esther chapters 1 and 2, Xerxes throws a rager. 180-day party says, this isn't enough. Let's go seven more days. So he throws a 187-day party. Meanwhile, the queen is throwing a party for the women in another part of the temple. The king, in a, in a in drunken stupor, calls for king, Queen Vashti to come and present herself to all of the men at his party. She says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so in true Xerxes form, he will not be denied. He says, fine, she's out. And he divorces Queen Vashti. So they come up with an evil plan to go around. And in all those provinces that were mentioned in Esther 1.1, they find women from every one of them. Josephus, a historian, records that 400 women were brought in front of Xerxes so that he could choose the next queen. And Esther, the Jew, the orphan Jew, somehow makes her way into the top 400. And, and she goes, and it doesn't, I don't know if she chose to or God brought her there. I, I suspect that had she said no and declined the offer that she may have been killed. Esther goes before the king, and she becomes the queen of Persia. In, in Esther 3, last thing I'll mention before we get into 4, Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman. Haman is an evil man. He comes up with a plot to kill all of the Jews, all 15 million of them. He comes up with a plot. He tells Xerxes that the Jews are a threat. We've got to get rid of them. And so they roll the dice, and the dice rolls that in 11 months, in March of the next year, they're gonna, he, the king is going to issue a decree that all the Jews, essentially their neighbors, can kill and pillage any Jew that they find. So in the same, literally, like Adolf Hitler in the 1940s, we're talking about Haman in the 480s B.C., wants to decimate the Jews. That brings us to verse, or excuse me, chapter 4. It's 17 verses long. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back through and pick out what God wants to say to us. So Esther chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, when Mordecai, that's Esther's cousin, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out of the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth is allowed to enter the king's gate. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. They had 11 months to live. Great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not even accept them. And so Esther summoned Hethak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and ordered him, go find out what's troubling Mordecai and why. Why is he dressed like this? Why is he weeping and wailing loudly in the streets? 
So Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Haman is going to pay a fortune for the right to kill the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go, listen, look, look at this, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for our people. Plead with him for the Jews, Esther. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. She instructed him to say to Mordecai, instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man, any man, including the queen or woman, who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, without being asked, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But, this is important, 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, and I think this is brilliant. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews are going to escape. Essentially, if you don't risk this, you're done, you're done for. And if you do the, risk this, you might be done for, but if you don't, you're done for. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your, family's fa- you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Hashtag providence. Then, Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So they fast, and they pray. Night and day, they don't eat, they don't drink. And perhaps you know what happens, but just in case you don't, you could go read chapter 5 and chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, and find that through the courage of Esther, the Jews are saved, and Haman is defeated, and the decree is reversed. And Esther saves the Jews. Esther, the unlikely hero that God places in a very, very secular position. Remarkably secular position. Esther is not a pastor. Esther is not a spiritual leader. Esther did not start the if gathering. Esther is not... This model of godliness, I know that that, I I may be shattering the story that you've heard about Esther. She's not the model of godliness, but but isn't it kind of nice to know that she wasn't perfect? It makes her a little bit more relatable. God uses her. God places her in a secular position 
in a secular job, and he uses her. And this isn't a one-off. I'm just kind of glancing through my Bible. Think about Joseph. Think about Daniel. Both of them, God allows them to rise to these places of political power, and God uses them. Think about Nehemiah. He's a construction worker. He's a foreman, and God uses him. Think about Luke. He's a doctor, and God uses him. David was a shepherd, and then he was a king. Neither of those are full-time ministry. He doesn't get the tax benefits that I do. He's not clergy. You guys see all through the Old Testament, you see that it's military, people that are in the military, and people that are tax accountants, and people that are farmers that God uses more than anybody else. In fact, the list is short of pastors in the Bible. There, there's some that are named in the New Testament, but you look at, I mean, the whole of Scripture, there's like, I don't know, thousands of people, I'm sure, that are named, and, and just very few of them are pastors. God uses these people in secular places. God places them and then uses them. And so if you are not a pastor, if you are not a missionary, this message is for you, and you should be so encouraged that God wants to use you. And so this morning, I'm talking to financial advisors and engineers and car wash owners and chefs and photographers and bridge builders and city planners and builders and doctors and nurses and dentists and teachers and the toughest job out there, stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads and furniture salesmen and anybody, if you are not a full-time pastor, if you are not a missionary, I'm talking to you. This Esther chapter 4 is for you. Charles Spurgeon, great theologian, amazing pastor, wrote this, and I, I want to pass it on to you. This is what he wrote. Perhaps, perhaps from time to time, you have been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish anything of the kind, but serve him where you are. God has placed you. God has placed you in the school you're in, in the office you're in, in, in the mom's groups that you're in. God has placed you. Because when people in your circles, whatever circle that is, when people in your circles are talking about family or politics or sex or business or law or economics or science, we, we need to remember that God has put us in those circles. God has placed us in those conversations. And to quote my man Mordecai, who knows? But that you have come to your royal position or whatever position for such a time as this. It's not a coincidence that you do what you do. God has strategically placed Christians all over the planet to further his kingdom, whatever your position is. And I, I, I know that, I don't know that anything I've said today so far has been, wow, that is, I've never thought about that before. But if you went to a library and you saw a book and it said, the title of the book was The Man God Uses or The Woman God Uses, would your first inclination be to think that that was a pastor or a missionary? A biography about somebody who is in full-time ministry somewhere. Uh, that's probably what I would have thought. 
But it's really not the theme of the Bible. The man that God uses or the woman that God uses is often very much not one of those things. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I think in our church and in our country, we might have it a little bit backwards. Sometimes I think that we have this idea that being a Christian or being a Christ follower or wanting to have an impact or following Jesus, for lack of a better way to put it, we kind of, it's kind of a little bit like a spectator sport where the game is Sunday morning and you watch, you come and watch people do the ministry. Like we watch Brandon and Chelsea and Kyle sing the songs and we watch Keandria read the, 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 the lyrics of the song and prepare hearts for worship and then you listen to me preach or, or whatever. We, we think that maybe other people are doing the ministry. You guys, Paul is like really clear about this in Ephesians 4 where he says, he's like, I, I gave the church this gift these pastors, these teachers, these evangelists, these apologists, kind of talks about some different things. He says, I gave the church these gifts so that, not so that they could do the ministry, so that they could equip people to do the work of the ministry. In other words, I'm not on the front lines when it comes to what God wants to do around the world. You are. That being a Christ follower means that you live out your faith in your circle where you are. I'm behind the scenes. I'm the equipper. And I think maybe from time to time, I certainly have had that backwards. And maybe we do. And Esther 4 proves God wants to use you where you're at. God uses Esther in her remarkably secular role to fight for justice, to save people, and help heal the world. Let me say that again. God uses Esther in her very secular role to fight for justice, to save people, and to help heal the world. And when I think about Esther and I think about all these other heroes of the Bible that made a difference despite the fact that they weren't pastors or missionaries, they really have one thing in common across the board. They are all very courageous. They show remarkable boldness, courage in the face of severe consequences, frankly, far more severe consequences that I think we might face if we would choose to be courageous. Look at Esther. Her consequences were, if I perish, I perish. Her life is on the line. And so Esther, if she's going to go in and be courageous, she's putting everything on the line. Her life, her job, everything is on the line, and she shows courage. So at first, when Mordecai says, you got to go talk to the king, she wants to explain herself. Mordecai, do you understand what the law says? If I go in there and the king doesn't accept, excuse me, extend the golden scepter, the law says that I have to die. I have not been summoned. I have not been asked. I do not have an appointment. And Mordecai says, you got to do it. Don't, you're not going to be spared. You, you and your father's family will be, will be killed. And Esther, I, this is, these, here are two thoughts I think Esther had while making this decision as to whether or not to go in there or not. Number one, I think Esther probably thought, God, what happened to the last queen? She was bold. How'd that work out? Not well for Vashti. It was boldness that actually got her kicked out. And so boldness doesn't seem like the right move with King, King Xerxes. Here's a second thought. 
I haven't been asked to go to the king for 30 days. The king doesn't sleep alone. He has other people, other wives even. And so the thought for Esther, I haven't been asked to go for 30 days. I got to think she's wondering if she's fallen out of favor with the king. He's been with whoever he wants to be with for 30 nights in a row. She's not booming with confidence. She doesn't feel like the, the king of his heart. And now to go in and be bold? But Esther, verse 15, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. We're going to do the same thing. And I'll go to the king. And look, if I perish, I perish. I will go to the king. I will do what God wants me to do. And if I perish, I perish. The law says that I will die. If he does not extend the compassionate golden scepter to me, it's over for me. If I perish, I perish. The boldness, the courage, the obedience, the willingness to lay it all on the line for the glory of God to save her people. I don't think that in your job, I don't even think your boss has a golden scepter. And I don't think your life is on the line if you request a meeting and want to complain about something. The consequences that you may face in wherever circle that you are in, I would contend are far less grave than what's on the line for Esther. But I do think that in the world that we're living in and in the culture that we're living in, it is beginning to require a bit more courage to honor God. Am I right? I think with the way things have gone and are going, I think it's only going to require even more courage to do what God wants you to do in your job when it comes to financial dealings, when it comes to the conversation that's being had either at the park or around the lunch table or about your boss with other coworkers. I think, um, I think that in the culture we're living in, it's going to begin to require a little bit more courage to do the right thing, to honor God, to fight for justice, and to bring healing into the world. And I want to ask you two questions back to back. And this is the part of the message that I do not think is a coincidence. I think it's providence that you are here and you are hearing these questions. What does it look like for you where you're at in your position to be courageous? What does it look like for you to be courageous in your position where you're at for you to do the right thing, to be bold when other people are not doing the right thing? I imagine that maybe even this past week, a boss asked you to do something that goes against your conscience. It's, a, it's against what God would say. Your integrity doesn't let it sit well with you. And you're making a decision even now about what you're going to do. What does it look like for you in your role, whether you're in a classroom or painting a house or crunching the numbers or scheduling a play date, what does it look like for you in your role to be courageous? Esther said, if I perish, I perish. I don't think that's the consequence for you. But for you, the consequence might be more something like this. If I am made fun of, I am made fun of. 
If I am ostracized, I am ostracized. If I am ridiculed, I am ridiculed. If I'm demoted, I am demoted. If I lose the bid, I lose the bid. If I'm fired, I am fired. <gasps> I, I think I think maybe it's going to require that level of courage at some point in our lives to do the right thing and to be courageous, to fight for justice, save people, and help bring healing into the world. Esther said, what does God want me to do? Go see the king? Okay, I will do it. And if I perish, I perish. Let me close with this. If I, if I, if I left it there, I would be doing you a tremendous disservice. So let me close with this. This is, uh, I would venture to say, the most important four minutes of the whole message. So if you're freezing, if you're tired, wake up. This is the, this is the part that matters the most to me. There's a danger that I want to warn you of. You're not allowed to leave here and say, oh, I'm inspired by Esther. I want to be like Esther. She's my example. I want to be bold like Esther. I don't want you to leave inspired by her example. You go and go, ah, I'm going to be more risky. I'm going to be more bold. I'm, I'm going I'm to speak up about my faith more. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to be like Esther, and if I perish, I perish. I think there is great danger in leaving today with that attitude. Here's why. I think that that will wear off quickly. I think if you try to muster up some kind of courage or boldness, I just don't think it'll last very long because the primary motivation behind that is guilt. The primary motivation behind that is guilt. And if you try to be like Esther, I think that will crush you. And I think you will be discouraged and I think you'll actually end up being less bold than you were to begin with. And so there's great danger in that. If you, if you try to go tackle this with your willpower and your efforts, I think you will run out of gas and I think you will run out of gas even quicker than you think that you will. Rather than seeing Esther as an example to follow, I want us to see Esther in chapter 4 as a signpost pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a second. God used Esther to save people. God used Jesus to save people. Esther risked the palace life and everything that came with it for other people. For the sake of other people. Jesus left the heavenly throne room and everything with it for the sake of other people. Philippians 2 says that he, he is God, but he kind of left that aside and emptied himself for the sake of other people. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus essentially said, when I perish, I'll perish. And it will be for the sake of others. And so Esther is actually a beautiful foreshadowing of the person of Christ who will come 480 years later. Who said that? Yes! Thank you. Amen. Esther is this beautiful picture of what Jesus is going to do for our sins. If we try to be like Esther, we will wear out. But if we understand if we this morning just take a minute to try to understand that Jesus is our Savior, not saving everybody else, saving you. 
when we remember that Jesus saved me, us, me, then if I, if I think about how the king of the world left the throne room to come and perish for my sake, if I remember that, my identity changes. All of a sudden, I feel far more worthy. The value that I, has been attributed to me with, with nothing, I didn't do anything to, to be attributed that value, but Jesus attributes that to me. My whole being is transformed by the grace of God. And that, that inner transformation is what can sustain this level of courage. Y'all with me? Going out and trying to be more bold, good luck understanding that Jesus Christ came and changed who we are. That is the juice behind a courageous life. Only then can we have the freedom to heal the world from the places God puts us in. If I, if I came in here and I was like, hey, y'all be like Esther, that is called behavior modification preaching. And it leaves people dead inside. But if I come in and say, know Jesus Christ and his love for you, that is gospel-centered teaching. And that's the kind of stuff that can transform a person. And so the marching orders are not, go be more bold. The marching orders is that God saved you from your sins. That God sent Jesus to heal the world, including you. And when you realize that you are the one that is healed, that is the juice. That is what it takes to know that you are God's instrument he is trying to use to heal the world right where you're at. Right where you're at. God wants to use you where you're at. He has placed you just like he placed Esther. Will you all pray with me? Lord, thank you, Father, for the chapter 4 of Esther. I praise you for it, for all the people in here that aren't pastors or missionaries. I pray that we would not go out here and try to muster up some courage on our own, but that we would pause as we sing this last song, that we would reflect on the fact that we, if we have received it, have been saved from our sins. Let that be, God, what inspires us to live a life like Esther. But let's not, don't let anybody leave here feeling guilty, guilty to do it. Allow people in here to be transformed so that we can. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing another song. It's called I Surrender. Uh, I think it's a perfect reflection song after this message. During this, as always, we've got a prayer team in the back. There's one there, one there. Maybe a couple more will be back there. If you'd like to pray about anything, if you're the person I was talking to earlier, if it's not a coincidence that you're here, if it's providence that you're here and you just need somebody to pray with you, we'll have some folks back there. We'd love to pray with you. If you came in and you just need to pray about anything, we would love the chance to get to do that with you. Thanks for being here. Would you all stand? We're going to sing together. Thanks for listening. We hope you were both challenged and encouraged today. For everything you want to know about Three Creeks Church, visit threecreekschurch.com.